The book of Acts chapter 4. My theme is responding to tough truths of life. Responding to tough truths of life. I'll just do a quick recap. Last week in Acts chapter 3, I believe what we had there was a very practical lesson. And we saw that Peter and John incorporated into their lives and their living a number of things, a number of principles, number of things that they lived that, that enabled them to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Just wanted to do a quick recap without explaining, because if you missed it, you can go back and listen to that message. These are the six things we brought out last week. They were committed to prayer. And as a result, that led to them being sensitive to their environment. And they were flexible. They were open to interruption from the Holy Spirit. They had great faith and a sense of great expectation. They walked in humility. They didn't take the credit for themselves for the miracle that had taken place. They gave the praise to God. And they had an excellent, a good working knowledge of the word of God. So last week we saw the first recorded miracle of the early church. And it's a picture of salvation. Remember the man that was crippled for 40 years that was laid at the gate beautiful. is a picture of our lives in sin, crippled by sin, not able to walk before God And please God, outside of the covenant of God. So close, but still outside. And we saw that when the man was healed, his response was one of leaping and praising God. And that should be our response when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's a a joyous occasion, one that we celebrate. Amen. Now in chapter 4, we're going to see that The early church, and in particular here, the Apostle Peter and the Apostle John are going to begin to face some opposition. I want to say to us that, you know, if you are moving forward, you're going to face opposition. You're going to face opposition. As long as we are moving forward, we're going to meet opposing forces. So that should be expected. But what is more important is how we respond to opposition. And we will see here the response of Peter, John, and this new fledging church. They respond in a bold and assertive way and turn to prayer. And we're going to look at that, what they actually prayed and what we perhaps should be praying in our circumstances. So here we are, we're at the top of Acts 4. Just before this, we read in Acts 3 that Peter and John are going to the temple to pray at 3 p.m. This is the most popular prayer session of the three that's held. God interrupts them and a miracle takes place in full view Because there are lots of people in the temple when this takes place. So everyone knew this man because he was lame for 40 years. And it was a habit of his family 
to bring him to the gates each day where he would beg for alms. Have you got any change? So they knew him well. He was almost like a fixture in the temple. But for the first time, these people saw this man walking, leaping, and praising God. And the scripture says that they were amazed at this healing. And I want us to note here that Peter and John didn't take the credit for themselves for this healing. But they pointed to the person and works of Jesus Christ. So in chapter 4, at the beginning of this chapter, Peter is preaching to the, the, the congregation or the, the gathering in the temple. And news reaches the Jewish leaders. That there's a guy down in the temple preaching. And that there's a man down there who, you know that man that's been at the gate for, for many, many years, decades. Well, that man is walking around jumping and praising God. So, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. Because then these Jewish leaders are concerned about this. And they're going to come down for the purpose to shut up and to close down what Peter and John are doing. So verse 1 says, Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them. This, this is speaking of Peter and John. And put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Amen. So this scripture informs us that the priests, these were the religious leaders, the captain, the captain is probably the chief of police or the chief, the head of security, and was probably a right-hand man to the priests. And the Sadducees, they come down to see what's going on. And the Sadducees, they're mentioned in the Gospels, but also we also see another group mentioned in the, in the Gospels who are the Pharisees. And we know that Pharisees get a lot of bad press. But you know, the Pharisees were originally good men that during the Maccabean period, during the, the period in our Bible that we would look at, you know, the end of Malachi and then going into Matthew. The Pharisees were the one who came together to really to turn the people to God with the setting up of synagogues. But somewhere along the line, the focus was taken off God and more on who can keep the most rules. So in other words, they're saying you're more righteous, you're closer to God if you can keep more rules. And then pride crept in and they just went off onto a tangent. But initially they were good men. And in the Gospels we see that the Pharisees, they were the ones who were mainly opposing Jesus. But this changes in the book of Acts where the opposition is coming more from the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, they tended to have good political relationships with the Romans. And they were more concerned about the church taking away some of that political influence. 
So the Sadducees were the wealth, they were wealthy. And there were wealthy Pharisees, but the Sadducees were wealthy. They were the elite. They were the power brokers of that day. We'll call them aristocrats of the Jewish society. What we learn from the scripture, Mark 12, 18, that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. So the, the fact that Peter and John are preaching that Jesus was raised from the dead, that he had healed this lame man, they would not have liked that at all. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. In fact, they didn't believe in anything that was spiritual. They believed in the law and primarily the first five books of the Bible. So much of the other of the books of the Bible, the scripture, they discount it. They reject it. And they were the ones who were in charge of the education system of the day. So you have the Sadducees who only accept part of the Bible and reject the prophets and all of that, the Psalms, they're in control of the education system of the day. It sounds similar, doesn't it? (laughs) The people who are in control of our education system don't want anything, by and large, to do with the Bible. When you think about it, it would be like sending a Bible-believing teacher or preacher or Christian into a school that has on its curriculum evolution and you send somebody in to teach those children that God created the heavens and the earth. So that's the kind of situation here. Peter and John are preaching that Christ is raised from the dead, he's healed his man, and these uh, Sadducees who have uh, political power, they don't believe in the resurrection at all. And in fact, if you read through the Gospels and in the book of Acts, you see where both Jesus and Paul raises an argument in the midst of a crowd that divides the Pharisees and the Sadducees when he speaks about the resurrection. So we see that the Pharisees, and they're the leaders, the religious leaders of the day, but the, the Sadducees are the p- political power brokers. They are very powerful. And To some degree, they are enemies. The Sadducees and the Pharisees are enemies against each other. But what we're going to see here is a uniting of these two groups to come against a common enemy, which is the church of Jesus Christ. So verse 3 tells us it was evening. And we learned from last week that the Jews divided their day There was a 12-hour day that began at 6 a.m. in the morning, ended at 6 p.m. So this was after 6 p.m. that these uh, leaders came down to see what was going on in the temple. It took them three hours, from 3 p.m. the healing to 6 p.m. And note in verse 3 that they put them in custody, they locked them up in police cells. Because it was unlawful to try anybody after 6 p.m. But when you think about it, when was Jesus tried? It was in the evening, it was in the night, wasn't it? Who was he tried by? These same Sadducees and Pharisees. So they knew when they tried Jesus that they were breaking the law. So this time they locked them up in a police 
cell. And verse 4 says, however, many of those who heard the word believed, and a number of men came to about 5,000. Now, some scholars debate whether this number means that the church grew to a number of 8,000, so that the previous 3,000 that came to Christ added to this 5,000 will make eight, or whether this is a total of 5,000. So we have the first 3,000, and now the total is 5,000. And some say it's the Greek, because it's gender-specific, perhaps the numbers total 5,000 rather than 8,000. But note it says that in verse 3, those who heard the message believed. It wasn't the miracle that caused them to believe. When they saw the miracle, they were filled with wonder and amazement. But it was the word of God preached that generated faith, gifted faith in their hearts that they could believe. That's why we have to preach the word of God. That's why we have to preach the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Reading on from verse 5. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priests, were gathered together at Jerusalem. So they're getting the family involved now. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name on the heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Amen. So this is the next morning. They retrieve them from the police cell, bring them out. And they are on trial. Peter and John are on trial by the Sanhedrin Council. It's made up of both Pharisees and Sadducees. So we have here Annas. Annas is the legitimate high priest as far as the Jews are concerned. He can trace his lineage right back to Aaron, who was a a Levite. Caiaphas, on the other hand, was an high priest put in place by the Romans because they wanted to be plugged into the political power that Israel had. And then John and Alexander, we don't know much about them. So Peter and John now are on trial before the 72 most powerful 
political leaders in the nation. And of course, their main interest is to protect that political power and the control they have over the nation. What do you think was in Peter and John's mind when they're on trial? Maybe just two months before Jesus was on trial by these same individuals. He had an unlawful trial and he was condemned and sentenced to death. So you would think they'd be shaking in their boots and probably thinking that their way would result the same. That perhaps they would also be put to death. But the scripture says in verses 8 and 9 that Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Peter speaks with boldness because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he asks, what crime have they committed to cause the 72 most powerful leaders in the nation to come out and put these men on trial? Because this man which was lame can now walk. And then Peter, by the power of the Holy Spirit, turns the table So they have come to put them on trial and to judge them. And we're going to see in the scripture that Peter turns this around and he puts them on trial. Amen. And Peter quotes from Psalm 118. We sang the song about Cornerstone. Referring to the construction of the temple that was built by Solomon. We know that Solomon's temple was a a magnificent, a, a, a glorious edifice. It was built with two sets of workers, two sets of engineers, two sets of laborers, two sets of carpenters, two sets of every everyone. Because Solomon saw the temple and the temple site as somewhere that was sacred and holy. And in fact, that temple was built in complete silence. The temple was built in complete silence. So, and they knew this. And you won't find this in the scripture, but they knew this from Jewish history. That when the temple was being built, you had one crew up at the temple site. And they would make their measurements and send down a purchase order to the other crew at the quarry site. And say, send us a stone or carve out a stone of a certain dimension. They would receive the order at the quarry site. They'd make that stone to precision and then send it back up to the temple site. And then it would be fixed in place. Well, as this story goes, as the history goes, that one day a large stone arrived from the quarry site to the temple site. And those at the temple site didn't recognize it. They didn't know what it was for. And it was taking up a lot of space. So they said, you know what? We're going to just ditch this down. So they rolled it down the hill. And it ended up in a place the Bible calls Gehenna. If you've been to Israel, you've been to the old city. I remember every time we drove past that valley, Gehenna, the tour guide would say, "Uh, we're looking down into hell. Because that was the place where they took all their rubbish and they burnt all their rubbish in that valley, Gehenna. So then one day, um, whilst they were constructing this temple, they sent down a purchase order to the quarry site for the cornerstone. 
And the site manager said, we've already sent the cornerstone up. So he sent that message back to the temple sites. And he said, well, where is it then? Maybe someone remembered. Yes, remember, we rolled it down the hill. So they had to go and recover the rejected stone, the cornerstone. They had to go and recover it, bring it back up to the temple site and put it in place. So when Peter is quoting about the cornerstone, this stone that is rejected, they fully well know the scripture and their own history, what he's talking about. And isn't it amazing that that cornerstone came, they didn't recognize it, they rejected it, and they rolled it down into a place which is akin to hell. Can you see Jesus in all of this? And then that stone is then raised back up out of Gehenna, back to the temple site, and becomes the cornerstone which then joins together the Jews, because the cornerstone was used to join together two walls. So the cornerstone then joins together the Jews and the Gentiles to create the church of Jesus Christ. Amen. I told you that Jesus is all over the Bible. It's all about Jesus. If we take time to look. So they understood Peter's analogy and his quotation from the scripture. But now those who were investigating them are being investigated. Those who were judging Peter and John, they're being judged. And then Peter, with great boldness of the Holy Spirit, announces to them that by the name of Jesus only can we be saved. Not through keeping religious rituals and laws, only by accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior can we or anyone be saved. And there's John standing beside Peter, the Apostle John. And he would write later in 1 John 5.12, He who has the Son has life. He's saying the same thing. He who has the Son, capital S-O-N. He who has Jesus has life. He who has not the Son has not life. All of us fall into two categories. You either have the son or you don't have the son. We're not saved because we are good in ourselves. We do good deeds. We're not saved because we go to church. We're not saved because we think we deserve to be saved. There's only two categories, loved ones. If you have the son... You have life. You may have the son, but you don't feel worthy of having the son. But you have the son. You're saved. You have life. Eternal life. If you don't have the son, you don't have life. That's the word of God. And that's what Peter is saying to them. Only through Jesus Christ can you be saved. Now let's look at the reaction of the Sanhedrin. These 72 most powerful political leaders in the nation of Israel. He says, now, this is verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Amen. 
And seeing the man who had been healed standing up with him. So exhibit A. <laughs> I don't know where he slept that night, but he was up first thing in the morning to stand alongside Peter and John. And he's probably hugging them up and jumping all over them. When they saw the man that was healed, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go outside of the council, they conferred amongst themselves. So they asked Peter and John to be removed from the council so they could have a private discussion. And this is what they said, saying, What shall we do with these men? For indeed a noticeable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. So again, these people who are the political leaders, and particularly the Sanhedrin, in charge of education, they're the one that set the curriculum. They're being schooled here by Peter and John. And they perceive that these men are not educated. Now, I don't know how they could tell that. But they understood that, you know, they haven't come through our university anyway. I don't remember any of them graduating from the Sanhedrin University. God uses ordinary people. Put your hand up if you're ordinary. You know that we're ordinary and special all in one. <laughs> so you're special and you're unique, but you are ordinary. God uses ordinary people. Peter and John, they noted that they were untrained, they were uneducated, but they were available. And did you know that God is more concerned with your availability than your ability? There's lots of people who have ability but have not made themselves available. God is more interested in your availability than your ability. Amen. And note in verse 13, they took note that they had been with Jesus. So they were untrained, uneducated, but they knew they had been with Jesus. I think that's, if you've got a Bible, that's, that's a good place to mark your Bible. To put a line or a highlight or on your iPad or whatever you're viewing the scripture on. That's a good place to put a note there. Can people look at us and know that we've been with Jesus? When we're under the cosh in our workplaces, do people look at us and note that he or she has been with Jesus. We see here that the word of God, spoken through ordinary men, broken vessels, brings about a miracle in the life of this man and his changed life. That's what God wants to do with us. Ordinary people 
who live out the word of God and bring miracles to those who are in need. Verse 14 says, they had nothing to say because the healed man was standing right there with them. So they sent Peter and John away and they have a private discussion. They couldn't punish them for the good that they had done. But they wanted to stop the influence that they were having over the people. So they come up with a threat. Yeah. So the solution is for them. We have to tell them they can't preach anymore in this name of Jesus. That's in verse 17. Hoping that Peter and John would receive that and say, okay, we'll just, we'll just we'll shut things down then. So they bring them back in to the council and command them to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. But then Peter hits them with a bombshell. Remember I said, he's putting them on trial. So he, said to, he says to these 72 men, you decide if it is right to obey God or to obey you. So Peter saw this command from the Sanhedrin as being in direct opposition to the Great Commission given in Matthew 28. Jesus told him to go into all nations, preach the gospel, and make disciples. And again in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he said, wait for the Spirit to come so that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and to the uttermost parts of the world. And now the Sanhedrin and this council is saying to them, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. Of course, we know as we read on that Peter and John and the apostles don't obey this command and don't succumb to this threat. And from scripture, I would say that this is the only basis for civil disobedience in the scripture. In other words, we believe that God permits all who are in ruling authority, presidents, prime ministers, God permits them. God exalts and God pulls down, doesn't he? So whether we agree with someone's politics or not, if God didn't permit them to be where they are, they wouldn't be there. So according to Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, it says there that we should obey the law of the land in which we live. We should obey that only in the case where it is very clear from scripture that that law is in opposition to the word of God. Are we not to obey the law of the land? And we know that there are people around the world who are suffering persecution. There are countries around the world right now, many of them, where they are being persecuted because they are preaching and declaring the name of Jesus. So Peter asked them, is it right in the sight of God? He doesn't ask, is this popular? He asks, is this right in the sight of God? And I would say that's a good question for us to ask whenever we are making decisions. Not whether does this feel right. Can I get away with this if nobody finds out? The question we should ask, is it right in the sight of God? Because you know God sees all things. There's nothing hidden from God. The, the, the night is as day before God. 
Is this right in the sight of God? And I believe if we ask ourselves that question, our lives will be better. Amen. Is there any agreement in this house? So consider asking yourself that question when you are making decisions. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 10, 19, and 20, that when they are delivered over, in other words, he was telling them, you're going to be arrested, you're going to be on trial. He said, don't worry about what you will say, because the Holy Spirit will give you what to say. So what happens here is that the Sanhedrin threatened them again and let them go. But I want us to notice three things now, which I, I think are very important. That um, happens as a result of this threat, this opposition. Because I think we can bring this right down and earth it in our circumstances. When we go through tests, when we go through uh, trying situations, from the scripture that we see here, some very powerful things. And if you're not going through a test at this moment in time, maybe you can just jot down these three points. They'll be summarized towards the end of the message. Because all of us go through tests, you know? All of us go through trying times. We cannot escape it in this world. It's part of the package. Life is not a buffet. We can go and pick out all the things you like. You don't put anything you don't like on your plate. Life is not like that. It's a mixed bag. And sometimes things come down your track that you didn't expect, that you don't like. And this is what's happened to Peter and John. But what we see here, I want to encourage you to take this on board. Verse 23 says, and being let go. So they threatened them and they let them go. They went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to him. The first thing, when we face threats, opposition, upset, testing times we must remember that we are part of the body of jesus christ and that jesus ministers life through the body jesus ministers life through me through you to each other we must remember that so when we go through times of trauma what this scripture is saying to us that we should go to mature godly believers don't isolate yourself Go to mature godly believers. And notice it says that they reported all. The lady all before them. What the chief priests had done. They reported all that happened. Sometimes we need to just be honest with ourselves. I don't know if you've ever handled a, a situation in, in a bad way that you regret. But you know what this is saying that you go to godly people. Because in the multitude of godly people, there's safety, isn't there? The scripture tells us this in, in, in Proverbs 11 verse 14, in fact. So we go to godly people and say, look, this is what I'm going through. This is what I said. This is what I did. What do you think? And then perhaps those older, wiser, godly um, individuals can either confirm and say, well, what you did was right. Or maybe they can give us instructions and say, well, you didn't handle it in the best way. 
And perhaps next time you can consider handling it differently. So we get insight. And also we can get encouragement. We have to trust each other. Amen. You have to have someone. You know, I don't know if you have a network or some people around you. Don't wait for the crisis to come. You've got to cultivate a support base around you. Most time you're probably not going to go to them with your tests and trials. But when that time hits, it's probably too late then to be, to be putting that in place. You've got to have people around you who are godly, who are mature, who love you for who you are. And not because what they can get out of you. Or what they can get from you. They have your best interests at heart. And in those times of tests and opposition, you go to those individuals and receive counsel from them. So that's number one. So I want you to tuck that away somewhere. Now let's notice the church's response from verse 24. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. So we've noted that the first thing they do is to go to get the counsel of godly, mature believers. And note this, this is number two. The response then is one of prayer. The response is one of prayer. Notice in verse 24, they begin in prayer and they begin with great praise. And they quote in there from Psalm 146 verse 6. Now this may be obvious to some of us that we begin prayer with praise. Jesus, when his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. As John taught his disciples, what did he say? He said, when you pray, say, our Father. Who art in heaven, holy, hallowed, sanctified is your name. So Jesus, his model prayer to us, his disciples, is to begin our prayer in praise. And that's what we've been doing for the past week. Those who have been a part of the, the week of prayer. We've started each evening by looking at the Psalms and beginning in praise before we bring our petition. So praise and thanksgiving to God is important. Why do you think God needs reminding that he's great? Do you think God needs reminding that he's sovereign? 
that he's ruler, that he's healer, that he's deliverer. That, that, th- these are the things that we say in praise. Well, praise is not so much for God's benefit. Guess whose benefit it's for? It's for our benefit because when we're under the cosh, when we're distressed, you know what? We can lose sight of the power and the majesty and the might of God. So this is what the church do. They begin in prayer, but they start at the place of great praise. God, if you made the heavens, if you made the earth, if you put the stars in place and created the sea and all that is in the sea, then my troubles, my burdens, You can handle it, God. Someone say, God can handle it. So even though sometimes we don't feel like praising God when we're going through tests and we have opposition, but notice, one, they went to mature believers. Secondly, they began and they turned to prayer, but their prayer began with great praise because God, if he created the heavens and the earth, our challenges God is sovereign he can handle those challenges and he can give us the grace to handle those challenges amen and the other thing that praise does praise kind of sets us at a place where our tone of prayer is one of victory because when we pray we have to believe so it's pointless if you pray and you're in doubt and you're wondering wonder if God is even hearing this When we praise God and declare he's magnificent and almighty and all-powerful, then what proceeds from our petitions is going to be in a totally different tone from maybe where we started and where our minds and our hearts were. Amen. I feel like asking you to stand up and just praise God for 30 seconds. Let's do it. Just stand. Stand and praise God. Praise him. In the midst of your storm, in your tests, opposition is facing you. Can you praise God? He made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. He's almighty. He's all powerful. Hallelujah. Our God can handle our situations. Amen. And we praise him and we pray from that standpoint. We are not defeated. We are not defeated. We have victory in the name of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. He was raised from the dead. And our dead circumstances are going to be raised too. By the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. We declare that out of our mouths, oh God. Hallelujah. You are the most supreme being. There is none above you. The sovereign king of kings. Hallelujah. We praise God. Out of the midst of our grief. This afternoon. We praise God. Even though we're facing financial challenges. We praise him. Because he's almighty. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Glory be to God. Hallelujah. 
Hallelujah. I will bless the Lord. At all times, his praise will continually be in my mouth. The God who is our salvation, our deliverance. You are the strength of our lives, God, we declare. Our light and our salvation. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Be seated for a while. Nearly finished. So I want to reiterate. They went to godly people to be encouraged to receive wisdom and instruction and counsel. And then there was a turn to prayer. But they began that prayer with great praise. I want this to be embedded down in our spirits. We're going to need this, I'm telling you. We're going to need this. And then in verse 29, again, we see something here which is huge. Notice what they pray for and notice what they don't pray for. They don't pray that God will take away the opposition. How many times have we prayed for God to remove the problem? They don't pray that. But what they say to God, God, look at their threats. Take note of what the, that the opposition is threatening us. Amen. But they didn't ask God to take away the problem. And they're praying here from Psalm 2. They're saying, let us be obedient, Lord, even in the midst of tests, even in the midst of opposition, we are going to be obedient. So they're not praying for the elimination of the opposition, but rather they are praying for boldness, for strength to meet the opposition. And in this case, in verse 28, they recognize that the opposition was according to God's purpose. Hmm. That's a hard one to swallow. Sometimes when we're going through tests, we're being put through the mill, it's according to God's purpose. We always like to blame the devil, don't we? But even though sometimes the devil raises up his heel against us, the sovereign God, who knows all things, he knows the end of the movie. He knows that you're going to end up in victory. You can't see it. You can't see that what you're going through is according to God's purpose. It doesn't feel like it. But the God who is the beginning, the God who is the end, the first and the last, works out all things. And only he can do it. You know why? Because he's the only one that knows all things. So even things seem to be contrary to where you want to be and where you feel you should be. God's working it out for a greater purpose. You know, we have a myopic view. We can only see so much. But God is up there in a helicopter view. God's working it out. Amen. Can someone praise the Lord? So they recognize that this opposition is part of God's purpose. It's unpleasant. However, in this process, they are a witness for God. And as a result, 
Thousands of people come to faith in Jesus Christ. So what I'm saying is that when we are in times of testing, we need to pray and ask God to give us the spirit of discernment. Should we be praying for God to move the mountain? Or should we be praying for God to give us the strength to climb the mountain? Two different prayers altogether. Sometimes we're praying for God to move the mountain. They didn't do this. They prayed for strength to climb over the mountain. And sometimes that's what we need to be doing. God, keep me by your grace from day to day. It's dangerous up here. One slip and I'm finished. But you're going to anchor me. You're going to take me over right up to the summit of my challenge. And when I get up there, I'm going to plant a flag of victory in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So sometimes we need to be praying for boldness, for strength, for God to take us over our challenges and not necessarily move them out the way. And we see here this boldness with which they, they preached There were signs and wonders that followed. Notice, after the preach word, there's signs and wonders. We don't follow signs and wonders. Signs and wonders follow the preach word. And here's God's response in verse 31. They were filled, again, all of them, with the Holy Spirit. This is the second time we see in the book of Acts that all of them were filled With the Holy Spirit. And as a result, verse 32 says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of Jesus, the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked for all who were possessors of land sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each one as anyone had need. So this is similar to what we see in chapter 2. But notice that they were of one heart and one soul. I believe that heart is referring to our spirit, our inner being. But the soul is referring to our conscious living, where we live where we think, where we feel, where we choose. They were of one heart and one soul. Did you know that you can't love me unless you know me? You can't love me unless you know me. You take me easy to live with. <laughs> I want an amen from right over there. <laughs> You can't love me if you don't know me. That's why it's important to come to church. That's why it's important to have fellowship. Because you will love an image of me until you get to know me. Anybody thinking about getting married in the house? Here's some good advice. Tuck tuck this away somewhere. You marry the ideal, but you live with the real. Lyrics. 
<laughs> Time and just drop a beat for that one. <laughs> you fall in love with the ideal. Isn't she wonderful? But you live with the, the real. Amen. We can't really love one another as a body, as a local fellowship, if we just touch points and we have to spend time getting to know each other. To love with a soul means I've got to come into the space where you're feeling, where you're thinking, where you're making decisions. I'll never really understand you. But the thing about it is, even when I come into that space, my flaws are, re- are revealed your flaws are revealed i still love you amen and that's the love of god because god sees all our mistakes and our mishaps and our ignorance but yet god looks at us and he still loves us with an everlasting love someone say praise god there It says that they had all things in common. In other words, they were a community. And this is not Marxism or communism, where we are forced to give up what belongs to us. This is coming from a place of love. Matthew 22 tells us the two greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. But we should also love our neighbors as we love ourselves. So communism is what is yours is mine. But this love of community is what is mine is yours and I'm willing to share what I have with you. And that is so important as we face the climate of today and the crisis. I've said it from this pulpit before. There may be some amongst us who may fall on difficult times, can't meet your financial commitments, worrying where you're going to get food from to put on the table to feed your kids. Let there be love. What belongs to me, I'm willing to share with you. I don't want you to go to bed hungry. I don't want you to sleep in the cold. So let's just hold these thoughts in our minds as we, we are going through a stormy time. The world is. Amen. And it says that great power and great grace which enriches our lives was upon them. Someone says that uh, using the, the, the grace acronym means great riches at Christ's expense. So there's a, lots of practical things that we can apply there. But I want you to hold on to those three things. If you can reverse the slides back up, please. I want you to hold on to those three things when we're going through Trying times. Get the counsel of mature people. Pray. But begin with great praise. So we remind ourselves and set the tone that we're then praying from a place of victory. And then ask God to help you to discern. Should I be praying for this problem to be eliminated? Or should I be praying for the strength and the grace to get over it? And to conquer it. And then the last two verses I'm not going to read because they really belong, I believe, to Acts chapter 5. So I'm hoping the next person that comes to share from Acts 5 will pick up on verses 36 and 37. 
Have you been encouraged this afternoon?